Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. Our Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. Our Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O rock, you have adorned them, ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do, do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You've made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. And then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as a grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will not will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will be able, you will become their victim, because you have plundered many nations. The people who are left will plunder you, for you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it or an image that teaches lies? 
For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone. Wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. As a parent, it feels like it's easy to make dud discipline decisions. I sort of think I probably shouldn't be saying this with all the kids here amongst us today. It's kind of like giving away trade secrets. But um, do you know the kind of dud discipline decisions I mean? They're disciplines that just don't fit the occasion. Like you're camping and you threaten if they keep up the bad behaviour that they're doing, that they'll be sent to bed early. And so, of course, one of them keeps it up. And then for the next hour or so before the rest of the kids go to bed as well, you have to put up with the screaming and the, uh, the crying, I'll be good, I'll be good, with nothing but a thin layer of fabric between you and the rest of the campground to enjoy. There's all sorts of outrageous dud discipline threats you can make as a parent that just don't fit the occasion. They're kind of addictive, actually, once you start making them. <laughs> threats like, I'll stop the car right here and you can get out and walk home when you're on North Terrace. Or threats like, that's it, we're cancelling Christmas. Or if you keep speaking like that, you can go and live with your grandparents. One of the best dud disciplines I've heard was uh, from a friend. I won't mention names because they are from this congregation. Who said to their daughter when he was extremely pushed to his limits, that's it, you're banned from all fun forever. (laughs) That's a dud discipline. Because apart from it being completely unrealistic, I'm pretty sure she was having fun right in that moment watching her dad spit his dummy. It's also a dud because the punishment doesn't match the crime. It seems excessively ridiculous. It was a discipline that doesn't fit the occasion. Last week, we saw that Habakkuk complained to God and said, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? And then we saw that God's answer was that he's not going to for much longer He was about to judge decisively and dramatically. He was sending the Babylonians to judge his people. Now, as you can imagine, that wasn't quite the answer that Habakkuk was hoping for. In fact, having heard God's answer, he can't help but bring a new complaint to God and wait for a new answer because to him, and probably to us, it looks like God's judgment just doesn't fit the occasion. God's judgment looks unfair. Have a look at verse 12, where Habakkuk replies to God. He says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them, that's the Babylonians, to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. That's what we saw last week. And then in verse 13, we see the details of his new complaint. We see exactly why he thinks this punishment doesn't fit. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? And here's the very heart of the question. Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Habakkuk, shifts from calling on God to judge the wicked among his people to questioning how God can use people who are more evil 
than the people they're judging. Israel had been bad, but Babylon's even worse. God's judgment just doesn't seem to fit. Now, in some ways, Habakkuk's questions here haven't really changed from the questions he was asking last week that we saw. It's just that the stakes have gotten higher as the evil gets deeper. He's still asking God, why are you silent, God? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? But mind you, logically, the problem stays the same. Whether God's tolerating a little bit of evil or a lot of evil, it doesn't really change the problem. If God tolerates and even uses any amount of evil, it raises the same question. How can a good God allow and even use evil? Now, this is, this is a hard question, isn't it? It's a, a hard question that's caused many people to give up faith in God altogether as they experience something terrible in life. It can drive them away from God as they lose faith in His goodness or in His ability to actually help or they call into doubt His very existence. But Habakkuk isn't doing that here. He's not giving up on God here. Behind his questioning of God actually stands his faith. At no point is Habakkuk doubting God's character. Did you notice how he refers to God as he asks these questions? In verse 12, he says, my God, my Holy One, my Rock. He's questioning from a place of absolute faith in God. In fact, the very reason Habakkuk has a complaint to make to God at all is because he knows the character of God. Look again at verse 13. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. See, he doesn't doubt God's goodness. And in verses 14 to 17, it's very clear that he doesn't doubt God's power, his control over circumstances. But because he knows these two things about God, God's goodness and his power, he has a problem. And logically, the problem goes like this. He knows God is good. He knows that God is powerful. And yet, he also knows that evil exists. How can these three things possibly fit together? Well, some people try to put them together like this. If God exists, he would be good and all-powerful. An all-powerful and good God would stop evil, but evil exists and so they make this conclusion. Therefore, God does not exist. Now, if all those premises were true, then that conclusion would automatically be true too. But there's a problem with premise two. Would a good, all-powerful God stop evil? Not necessarily. Not if God had good reasons to allow it. And just because we might not know what those reasons are doesn't mean that they don't exist. This premise is false and so is the conclusion. For the premise to be true, it could only say this, a good or powerful God would stop evil unless he had good reasons to allow it. Now Habakkuk, he knows God exists. He's talking to him. He doesn't doubt his goodness or his power, he's wrestling with God's reason for allowing evil and even using the Babylonians. 
See, what good reason could God possibly have to use the Babylonians? That's where he's questioning lies. It's beyond his understanding. And so he asked God in verse 17, is Babylon to keep emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? And what we see is that God's answer this week is not all that different to last week's. Last week, God said he wouldn't tolerate evil from his people for much longer. And this week, he says he won't tolerate evil from the Babylonians forever forever either. But God goes beyond just saying he won't tolerate the Babylonians' evil forever. His answer shows that while in one sense he stands behind the Babylonians, in another sense, he stands completely apart from them. Look at verse 4. God says, See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. In other words, what Babylon desires is not what God desires. God desires what's upright, while the Babylonians desire what's evil. But even though they desire different things, God, being God, is able to use the Babylonians to achieve His good purposes. God stands behind and yet, at the same time, apart from the Babylonians. Now, the Bible is actually full of examples of this. At the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob has died, and so his sons become scared that Joseph might finally seek revenge for the way that they sold him into slavery. Do you remember that story? Jacob's dead, the brothers are starting to freak out because now Joseph's going to get revenge. So they throw themselves down at his feet, But listen to what Joseph says to them in Genesis 50. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It was the one and same event, Joseph being sold as a slave. But they had different intentions. They intended evil and God intended good. God works like this all the time, always bringing about good, not just despite our evil, but even through it. The best example of this, of course, is with Jesus. To a crowd in Jerusalem, Peter says about Jesus in Acts 2, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross in the one and same event, Jesus' death. They intended evil, but God intended good, our salvation, our forgiveness of sins that he made possible. And both intentions were achieved at exactly the same time. One day we'll see that history is absolutely full of examples of humans intending evil by an action and God using it to bring about good. See, God's not subject to the same limitations as we are. We can't do that. God can use an evil action and bring good without being responsible for the evil himself. God's not like us. God can be completely in control and yet work through our free choices to achieve exactly the outcome he always intended. Now, in a way, I think you get a a tiny, tiny taste of this, of how it might work if you think about Syria. 
I think it was Tony Abbott who said, there are no good guys in Syria. You know, you've got the Assad regime on the one hand, using chemical weapons against their own people. You've got ISIS killing people, destroying, wiping out minority groups. And you've got the rebels who apparently are committing their own war crimes too. So what should our government do? They're never going to support ISIS and supporting Assad is probably not much better. So what do we do? Well, at least for a time there, what we were doing was supporting the rebels with things like providing access to weapons and ammunition and training. Now, you could imagine someone on the ground in Syria living under the propaganda of the um, Assad regime, wondering what kind of evil people in Australia would supply such an evil group as the rebels with weapons. But if they could see the bigger picture, then perhaps they could understand why we're doing it. God doesn't see the bigger picture. God sees the whole picture. Do any of us really know how to solve Syria? And yet, the complexity of the mess in Syria or Palestine is actually nothing compared to the complex web of evil within the hearts and minds of of every person that's ever existed. Think of the mess between individuals, between families, societies and nations, the complexity of this world is mind-blowing, yet God sees it all and nothing happens outside of His knowledge, nothing happens outside of His permission and yet at the same time nothing happens except what He will somehow use for good and true and pure purposes. It's little wonder, of course, that we can't keep up with the mind of God to always understand why God is doing what He's doing. And of course, it would be complete arrogance of us to ever think that we could. God doesn't justify Himself to Habakkuk. Nor does He even explain the complex forces that make His judgment through the Babylonians morally right. Instead, He says that while He stands behind the Babylonians, He doesn't stand with them. And in fact, He says to Habakkuk, He stands against them. Look at what God hates about the Babylonians. Through the voice of um, the nations that have been the victims of Babylon, God pronounces five woes, five announcements of judgment because of what they are doing. And so first, in verses 6 to 8, God says the Babylonians face judgment because they plunder the nations. Look at verse 6. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods. And then second, in verses 9 to 11, God says they face judgment for the way they've carefully planned their evil. So in verse 9, Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples. Third, in verses 12 to 14, God says they face judgment because they've promoted violence. Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Or fourth, in verses 15 to 17, they face judgment for their perversion of the nations as they've demeaned them. Verse 15, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. And finally, they face judgment in 18 to 20 for trusting in fake gods. 
verse 19, Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? Habakkuk, he knows that God is too pure to look on evil. And so he asks, how can God use Babylon? And God's answer is that, on the one hand, he won't use them permanently. But more than that, God can't use them happily either. He stands against them, ready to judge them too. Now God may use evil in this world to bring about good, but he doesn't enjoy it. In fact, he hates it and he stands against it, ready to judge one day all evil. Did you notice what stands behind all the things that God hates? It's arrogance. Have a look in this key verse in the whole book of Habakkuk, verse 4 in chapter 2. God says, see, the enemy is puffed up. God hates it when people proudly assert themselves against others and when they proudly assert themselves against him. Like a balloon that's inflated, you know, people having an inflated opinion of themselves but no real substance. One day, God says, that truth is going to catch up with them. In fact, in Habakkuk we read that one day that truth is going to catch up with everyone. Look at verse 14 where we see this. God says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A day is coming when human arrogance will be flooded with the knowledge that we are not in control, but God is in control. That we are not so glorious as we thought, but God is glorious. That God will not have to give an account to us, but we to Him. And what will we say? Verse 20 tells us all that we can say. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. When we know the truth about who God is and we know the truth about who we are, what can we do but stand before God in silence? Realising that when all is said and done, we've got no answer to give to God for the evil that we've done. We've got no excuse that we can offer. God doesn't need to justify Himself to us, to people who have no defence for the way that we've lived. When we stand before God... No one will remain standing who's, who's proud in their own strength. We see who will remain standing in this key verse in Habakkuk, in verse 4. Have a look again. God says, see the enemy is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Some versions have the righteous will live by faith here, because that's how the New Testament quotes it. Like in Romans 1.17, Paul says, the righteous will live by faith. Now that sounds pretty different, doesn't it? On one hand, um, one sounds like the righteous will live by their trust in God, but the other sounds like the righteous are going to live by their performance, by, by um, earning their place before God. Well, the right translation here is actually faithfulness. It's like loyalty. The righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. But the faithfulness that God is calling for here in Habakkuk 
is absolutely about having faith in God. Habakkuk models this, as we'll see next week, where he can't understand exactly why God uses evil like this, but nevertheless, his faith rests in God because of what he does know and understand about God. When you stand before God in silence, knowing that there's nothing that you can say to justify yourself, there's only one way to stay standing before Him. And that's to stand there not arrogant in your own strength, but humble before God, trusting in Him as God. Those who live by their faithfulness are those who are dependent on God right to the end. They cast themselves upon His mercy, knowing that He will never cast them away. These are the ones who live. And this is exactly what Habakkuk does, as we'll see next week. He's faithful, he remains loyal to God. In faith, he looks to God for understanding, despite his confusion. In faith, he looks to God for righteousness, despite his guilt. And in faith, he looks to God for joy, despite his circumstances. That's the loyalty, the faithfulness that God desires. Faith that, no matter what, cries to him, my God my Holy One, my Rock. Now, does this mean that when we struggle to feel God's goodness, we just have to blindly accept it? Well, it doesn't mean that at all. And we're going to see that next week when we complete our series, when we see Habakkuk's final response. What we've seen in many ways over the last couple of weeks is that life, it's a bit like a tapestry. From the back, a tapestry just looks a complete mess You know, there seems to be threads going everywhere. They seem random. They seem to make no sense. And for us, in this world, life can seem that way. We wonder how evil and and suffering can possibly fit in God's overall plan. Life just feels a mess sometimes. But a day is coming when we'll see the other side. We will see the beautiful work that God has been creating. Now, even on that day, we won't see it or understand it to the same degree that God does. God understands every single painful stroke. God has been way more invested in the pain and the struggle of this work, this world than we realise. And we see that, of course, chiefly in Jesus, where God enters the mess of this world in Jesus, dies on the cross so that the mess and the pain and the evil and the suffering of this world could be ended forever. But nevertheless, one day we will see that our own heartache, suffering and pain has had a purpose. We will see that God has brought about something beautiful. And then and probably only then will we be able to agree with God that it's all worthwhile. Can you entrust yourself to God, the artist behind this world? Can you trust God that He knows what He's doing? The God who entered into the mess of this world in Jesus in order to end it. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much in this life that we don't understand. Lord, in in the events and the pain and the suffering, we are so often confused unsure about what you're doing. Lord, sometimes to the point of doubting your goodness or doubting your power or Lord, even doubting your very existence. 
as we look back at the cross and see the power and the love and the mercy. And Lord, that you are not aloof and standing away from us. Help us to be reminded again that you, Lord, not only understand what you're doing and know what you're doing, but Lord, you are willing to get your hands dirty for our sake, to bring us to a world where there will be no pain, no evil and no suffering. Lord, help us to entrust ourselves to you and even when we can't understand, to nevertheless have our deep faith in you because of what we do know of you, the character that we have seen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.